when we first debuted the peanut-free spread, I think the most powerful reactions were people who had been unable to eat peanut butter because of allergies and sort of like the the awe and surprise on their face. And then we actually had a former coworker of ours um, had tasted it and hadn't had peanuts in a very long time. And she cried because she was like, I recently became allergic to peanuts like a few years ago and can't eat this anymore. And this is mimicking so closely the taste of peanuts that she was like so thankful. Welcome to the Brands for a Better World podcast, the podcast that brings you the stories behind people and products, building a more just, healthy, and regenerative future for us all. Tune in weekly, and together, we'll learn why these better products and brands were created, how they're helping fix broken systems, and what you can do to support them. My hope is that you'll discover some new brands to love and get some sparks of inspiration that will help you live your best life. Hi, I'm your host, Gage Mitchell founder of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow to scale their impact. This podcast is one way we do that. If you like the show, please help it grow by leaving ratings and reviews on your podcast app and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. Maybe this will be one of them. On this episode, I'm speaking with Adam Maxwell and Kelsey Tenney of Voyage Foods, about why they decided to craft tasty alternatives to ingredients with vulnerable supply chains, how they're keeping all their products allergen-free and affordable, and their goals for scaling beyond their existing products. And finally, we wrap up with the rapid round question segment. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Adam Maxwell, right here with Kelsey Tenney. And we're from Voyage Foods. We're a food technology company trying to make better food for people on the planet. I'm uh, really happy to be here. Awesome. I'm excited to have you too. When I found out about your products and the mission you were on, I got really excited for multiple reasons. Like A, I just love you know better for people, better for the planet food. So I love geeking out with people on that mission. But B, I know there's increasing number of people with allergies. So I'm excited to dig more into your kind of allergen-free angle. But I also know, as a kind of long-term sustainability geek, I love that you have a longer-term play of future-proofing your foods around products that have a vulnerable supply chain. So that's, I think, a rich conversation that I'd love to dive into a little bit more. But first off, like, how did you two meet and decide to come together to take action on that specific problem? Yeah, so we met, actually, this is the third place we've worked together over the last, I don't know, seven or eight years or something like that. We met at a food consultancy in Boston that is basically external R&D for companies giant to small. And it was a really interesting place where, you know, we were doing a lot of the same stuff, but in a very different manner. You know, we were external R&D consultants working with some larger food companies in the world, trying to help them make food that was, you know, better for, you know, human health and planetary health and have kind of followed that through line since then through, you know, another company in the molecular one in spirit space, and then really ended up here. And what roles were you both playing in those like collaborator roles? You were both food scientists, I think, right? Yeah, both scientists. We never worked like super directly initially on like parallel projects and paths, but I think both had very different but maniacal <laughs> approaches to, you know, 
let's really push the boundaries, the both kind of scientific and product boundaries of what can be done. And I think connected really early because of that. Cool. So you're both working together on these problems for clients, just trying to help them solve some of their challenges around food development. But then somewhere along the lines, you two, a light bulb went off in one of your heads, I imagine. So (laughs) how did the seed get planted for you to to build something of your own together? That's a great question. And I think there's no perfect linear answer for it. You know, we were working in the Bay Area's, you know, nascent food technology, you know, venture funded companies space. And, you know, we both had most of our previous work was in Kelsey much more so than me, but in in the confectionery industry and, you know, specifically around chocolate. And the more you learn about industries like that, you know, the scarier it gets, right? Whether it's from on the humanitarian supply aspects to deforestation, to keep up with demand all the way to, you know, yield loss and yield change and black pot rot, right? And it just seemed like this scary piece of, oh God, well, like, this seems like a need to have thing, not a nice to have. And that was kind of the initial core idea of, you know, how do we make food that's accessible for everyone forever? And, you know, if you look at the projections of supply and demand of commodities like coffee and chocolate, they start breaking at some point, right? We've actually seen that in the last 24 months in the cocoa industry. We're at the highest price we've been since globally since 1977. And we're starting to see those shifts. And, you know, a lot of Voyage was, you know, how do we decouple these, the consumption of what we enjoy as, you know, some of our, the world's favorite foods with their source material? And that was kind of the initial impetus, right? Yeah. And I think to add on as well, working with some of the larger brands that we were working with in Boston, many of those companies were confectionery focused and seeing the focus in R&D was, it was clear that this was a challenge that no one was tackling at these companies. And so it seemed like an inevitability that no one was really preparing for. That's interesting because like you mentioned the complexity or challenges in a supply chain like chocolate, right? And I've worked in the food space for a while now and worked with a few people trying to solve some of those problems. But like one of our clients, Alter Eco, for example, went about solving some of those problems by trying to encourage more sustainable or regenerative agriculture, for example, or making sure the farmers in the supply chain are taken care of so that they can continue doing this work and get fair wages and live a good life as well. And then on the flip side, we haven't worked with them, but I know of like a brand like Tony's Chocoloni, for example, where they're just really highlighting the labor challenges in in that industry of kind of fighting against slave labor or unfair working conditions and all that and trying to kind of bring up the dialogue there. But you two chose to go on a different path of like, what does a world without chocolate look like? So seeing all the problems that exist in a supply chain like chocolate, what made you decide to tackle the the far off, well, not maybe not so far off, but like the future, because like your branding is all built around voyage and almost space and stuff, right? So you were tackling like we could try to solve a problem that exists today, but let's look forward to the future and say, what happens when chocolate doesn't even exist anymore? How do we still enjoy delicious chocolate products? And I I might be like summarizing my thoughts of what your brand's all about, but feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But how did you end up choosing that lane to go down? Not off at all. Part of the name Voyage is an homage to 
the Voyager space program. So definitely not at all far from the target there. I think there's probably a multitude of reasons why. One is, you know, we're food scientists coming at this through a food science lens, right? So us working on the labor side and, you know, how we actually tag and trace those commodities, like we're not experts in there. We have, we have no business in doing that. But I do think that the probably main key reason is really you can keep putting Band-Aids on a problem, but it doesn't solve the underlying condition, right? Like if there's a, this market has a disease, for example, like you can keep taking Advil and you might feel better that day, but it doesn't solve any of the intrinsic issues of the, you know, massive carbon implications per kilo of chocolate or uh, deforestation or any of those other kind of near to long-term pieces. You know, I, I think they're, Band-Aids are useful, right? But it seemed we've always been like, let's play for the infinite game in the world at large. Like that's part of our vision statement that we read in, you know, every board meeting, every all hands meeting. And, you know, if you're looking at that, it, it really is how do we solve these long tail issues? And I think that's where the most value is going to come, right? Yeah, and I think even one step further, it's almost like if you had half of a Band-Aid, because when you look at West Africa, where a bulk of the global cocoa supply comes from, it's almost entirely actually like small shareholder farms. And so the impact you're able to have is really, really small. You have to deploy a lot of people, a lot of training, and incentivize all of those farmers to change their practices, to improve yields, things like that, which is definitely a, a noble purpose and is fantastic. It's just as Adam was mentioning, like we really wanted to think ahead to how we can have the greatest impact with our expertise and with the resources that we have. Yeah, that's a really good note. And it, it makes total sense when you think about A, your background, B, maybe also like some other people are already trying to solve some of those challenges, right? But who's trying out there trying to solve this challenge of what happens when there is no more cocoa or or most of the people around the world can't afford it because it's now so expensive that only a few people get to enjoy the luxury of it. So that all makes total sense. And the fact that you kind of tackle chocolate-like products <laughs> as one of your areas of focus makes a lot of sense. How does all that play into your other products like your peanut-free spread, for example, or your coffee-free coffee? Yeah, the story with coffee is quite similar, right? It's climate liable crop. You know, Robusta coffee was made to be more robust to weather, et cetera. You know, and now many of the Robusta varieties are almost at risk as the, you know, Arabica varieties, right? And so coffee and chocolate have quite parallel stories, right? There's a reason there's both fair trade coffee and fair trade chocolate because a lot of the trading in both of those is, you know, let's say not equitable in terms of the value chain. And, you know, something we talked about from, you know, we just turned three a few weeks ago, but from even before we were officially a company was, you know, accessibility for everyone forever, right? When you think of these commodities that have, you know, long-term production and supply demand risk, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I don't even remember how it came up. It was really this piece of, well, accessibility for everyone forever, like, Let's make products that, for very different reasons, are inaccessible for a lot of people today, accessible now, right? Because there are these long tail, like large macro environmental things. But, you know, a lot of the, you know, nut free spread side was, you know, how do we make these things accessible for everyone today, not just 
in 10 years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you look at how many children, especially in the U.S., eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at school, get a lot of their calories in a day, honestly, from peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and the, the difficulty of those being still available to consume at school lunches, at you know, at different public events, if everyone could access a peanut butter and jelly sandwich when they want, because you're taking out the liability of a peanut allergy, then really great impact to have as well. So I like too that you break down the accessibility in terms of both cost, um, but also in terms of, you know, allergen free, but then also in terms of supply <laughs> you know like if climate change or whatever happens to some of these industries and the supply is gone you know well that's not good you kind of tackle that accessibility from multiple angles but the one you were just kind of talking about the allergen free how and where did that plug into the original vision like was the vision more about let's tackle supply chains where there's labor issues and you know these crop inflation and these crops might not exist in the future and explore that and then the allergen free part was a logical add-on or was the allergen-free one of the original drivers? Yeah, that was definitely a logical add-on. And I think, you know, for some added context, the reason we started with that, like we'd actually, by the time we'd probably spent a year and a little bit working on the formulation side of things like cacao-free chocolate before we even had thought about touching the allergen-free spread side, but, you know, part of the reason why we did that first from a commercial lens was really it's not category creation in the way that cacao-free chocolate and, you know, bean-free coffee are, right? It's there are already things in the allergen-free space. It's closer in. And, you know, from like a business growth security standpoint, we realized that like we could grow that market faster and because we self-manufacture everything, we have a very large and costly but wildly effective R&D team that is led by Kelsey, we could get early revenues quickly. Um, and we want to demonstrate that we can you know, manufacture at scale, you know, sir, sell food nationally, et cetera. And we realized that it was a more efficient path to market than how do we build this new industry as a very small, nascent, tiny company. That makes a lot of sense. It's one of the things that I've been talking about a lot lately is um, I see a lot of early stage companies over innovating, like they want to come up with this new ingredient that nobody or not come up with. They want to use an ingredient that most people haven't heard of. And then they also want to formulate a product in this new way, whether it's healthier, made with more whole ingredients or more sustainable, whatever. And then they also think like, I'm going to put this in a novel format or a novel packaging or uh, whatever. And then maybe they also say, we should also show how different we are by having a really different brand from the rest of the category. And they, so they have all these layers of innovation that separate them s- so far from the consumer that then consumers are like, what is this? And what do I even do with it? And where do I even find it in a store? <laughs> and like, it just adds all these layers between you and, and the purchase that I get the idea of it. Let's come in and disrupt and like do something wildly different. But my theory is that you should limit your innovation and kind of scale it over time as you get adoption, right? So to some degree, like what you're talking about, having a product in a category that already exists, that people are already looking for in a store that's familiar, they know how to use it. They don't need a lot of explanation behind it. We'll get you some traction while you're trying to raise awareness for bean-free coffee, which might be a little bit 
more of a logical leap for people. Yeah, and those things, category creation takes longer and is more expensive also. And if you already have cash flow, uh, it's a lot less scary from people sitting in our seats uh, to get there. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about the advantage or, or how you've chosen the focus of the company based on your background as food scientists. But I also know that's a unique advantage for you because I've talked to a lot of uh, startup entrepreneurs who maybe have zero experience in food whatsoever, but they just happen to like cooking or they happen to feel like there is a gap in the market for someone like them, whether it's gluten-free or some other kind of thing, right? And so they get into the industry and start learning the industry, part of which is how do I make this product? And maybe they have to go work with someone like you to help develop that product or find ways to do it themselves, which is a huge learning curve, right? So you come into this with a huge background already knowing how to make products for giant companies. So it's easier for you to figure out how to make something good, make something that will, you know, be shelf stable, make something that will be cost effective and and affordable for your end users and so on and so forth. Like you've got all that skill set already locked down. So how would you say as food scientists, how would you say your product development process is different from maybe the average food startup? Yeah, that's a great question. This is something Adam and I talk about a lot, and it's actually a slide in my onboarding deck for any new members at Voyage, is that because we're food scientists, we are inherently pragmatic when it comes to looking at development, coming at development from a first principles perspective, like what is this ingredient doing? What could it be doing better? And how can we sort of make this more scalable, both from a cost standpoint and a production standpoint, so that we can have the broadest impact possible. I think this is super unusual in the food tech space. There's a lot of, whether this be like a new brand for a granola bar or a cookie or something, or like something like Salag or Precision Fermentation, often the one thing a lot of those new brands have in common is that they're not necessarily thinking about the scalability and price from day one, which is something that is core to our R&D process. And it's been really useful for us, for example, to manufacture ourselves because we're learning so much about the product and the process and we have so much control over the different levers that we can apply here that it's just giving us so many more tools to really keep growing the business and also keep developing new products. That's awesome. Yeah. I've heard so many case studies of entrepreneurs who are like maybe developed their first recipe in their kitchen and then have the shock when they go to manufacture that that's that recipe is not going to work at scale or the cost of doing it that way is just going to be way too expensive and nobody's going to be able to afford their product or they can't even afford to pay for the production time or, you know, so many other issues like that, or even people trying to build their own manufacturing that don't come from a food science background and then end up having like recall issues or some other kind of things because there were just issues they weren't thinking about. Um, So it's super powerful that you come from that background and have that process. And I think you even had some info on your website about your process. So you're pretty transparent about it. How, how close to your chest do you keep that process? I mean, it seems like you've put it up there for others to borrow, but do other food companies reach out to you and ask for advice or do you help mentor other people on how to design better products too? 
Really? Like, I think Kelsey and I have both helped out probably more people who've reached out than we would like to admit or the time would justify. People like, I have some crackpot idea. And I'm always like, I have no value for my time. I'd love to try to give you advice. And then a few months later, I'm like, why did I do this? One of which has actually been on this podcast, which is fun. But it was many, many, many years ago. We're not in the business of, you know, licensing out our our kind of R&D capabilities were already at capacity enough um, that, you know, that's kind of outside the scope of what we do, at least today. Yeah. And to, to follow up on the transparency with the process gauge, we have, it's always been like important for us to really show people that we're using real food ingredients. And so being slightly more transparent with our process is important for that reason. But we do definitely hold, you know, some trade secrets and things like that close to our chest. So what you see in how we speak about our process is super true. And then we definitely have some secrets up our sleeve that sort of like makes these products really sing on shelf. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I was admittedly a little bit surprised to see the process like on your website. I'm like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Cause I am one of those people, maybe like yourself, Adam, that just gives all my time away and all my value away just cause I'm, you know, so focused on the mission that I'm like, whether I do it or someone else does it, you know, the, the important thing is that it gets done. Uh, but for most food companies or product companies, usually there's like a, a wall that they have to put up around how they're manufacturing or what ingredients they're using or where they're getting them, et cetera. So it was cool to see that you share some of that process, but it also makes complete sense that you hold some of those secrets back too. Yeah. And one of those reasons is actually for those who are not on video, won't say, but approved patent behind my head right now. I think so much of the food industry as, as this kind of food tech sector, food 2.0 sector, plant-based, everything sector has developed, right? The whole industry was going clean label, clean label, clean label. And then everyone who's like, I'm replicating this food in a different way, we're going orthogonal to that, right? Whether it's the carboxymethyl celluloses, the totally purified proteins, et cetera. And, you know, at the end of the day, like all the like science and technology, like that, you know, sexy lab coat stuff, that stops we have actually a wall between our R&D labs and our manufacturing facility. And that stops the second you walk over that wall and then it looks like a chocolate factory. And so like, we want to be, you know, really upfront with, it is super whole food, clean label, totally innocuous ingredients. And, you know, the technology is in how we figured out how to turn those things into these awesome value added goods. But, you know, what you're consuming from a product standpoint really is, you know, as, you know, natural whole food ingredients, as, you know, something you'd see in an air wand in Santa Monica, right? Mm-hmm. The technology doesn't, that we use in the development doesn't impact any of the perceived healthfulness, et cetera. And maybe that's part of the value of showing the process too, because like you were saying, you're showing that you're using real food ingredients. You're not lab growing chocolate cells or in a Petri dish or doing some other kind of weird science experiments. You're just figuring out how to use ingredients in a way that maybe they aren't normally used and combine them in a way that kind of creates the mouthfeel and taste that you're trying to accomplish for that product. That makes sense. I know you said you just had your three-year anniversary, so happy birthday to Voyage. <laughs> but I think, if I remember correctly, some of your products came out in 2022 and some maybe in 2023. So you're still kind of like rolling things out. But what were the re- initial reactions from buyers or snackers as they start 
trying your products? And I think it's different for a lot of the products. So when we first debuted the peanut-free spread, I think the most powerful reactions were people who had been unable to eat peanut butter because of allergies and sort of like the the awe and surprise on their face. And then we actually had a former coworker of ours um, had tasted it and hadn't had peanuts in a very long time. And she cried because she was like, I recently became allergic to peanuts like a few years ago and can't eat this anymore. And this is mimicking so closely the taste of peanuts that she was like, so thankful. That's obviously like a very powerful reaction. Most people are not, you know, so, so touched, but a lot of people are feeling thankful that they are able to have that flavor back in their lives. And then I think something fun on the cocoa-free chocolate side is, again, like shock and awe of it. There's, you know, inexpensive compound coating versions of chocolate, which are, they taste artificial. They're very waxy. You've probably seen them in like bulk bins at the store that are less expensive, candies, things like that. And I think that's what everyone is expecting it to taste like, or like earthy, like they can't even really picture what the flavor will be like. And I think a lot of people taste it and feel really surprised at how realistic it is, especially in something like a chocolate chip cookie. A lot of people just feel so nostalgic and excited about it. And I think that's speaking to the soul of, you know, we're not creating this like cold, like in a lab chocolate product, it really touches the nostalgia in people when they when they taste these products, which I think is powerful and like very emotive when it comes to food development. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great to launch products and get happy responses, but having somebody cry because you brought them <laughs> a flavor back that they weren't expecting to be able to have again has probably a great the feeling. The first food show that we unveiled our products that had happened also and i just remember like all of us looking at each other right after being like we're doing some we're doing something right like the cpg worlds you know you're trying to create impact people at a large level but when you see a large impact to a singular person it, it, it in some ways is a lot more direct than being able to you know find tangibility and impacting a large people a less amount right yeah because i mean in business, you can look at the quantification of like, oh, this number of people, like 70% of people like this formulation or whatever, and you can kind of nerd out on the data. But real world, you know, personal stories or, or seeing somebody's reaction, I think is obviously more emotional and like sinks into us more, right? So you could read on a piece of paper that somebody likes something, but seeing them taste it and get so excited. I think that's a whole different level of reminder of what you're doing and motivation to keep doing it. I'm curious too, which claims as you're going around and like doing demos or talking to retailers or just seeing people try it at trade shows, which claims are kind of sticking out as the most important to them? Are you, are more allergen free people attracted to what you're doing? Are more health focused people attracted to what you're doing? Or is it like the sustainability claim for the kind of like long-term vision? Like what's really sticking out? It depends on the product. So, you know, initially when we were, you know, had launched the peanut free spread in late 2022, it was obviously, you know, a lot of people who either had allergies, some of their family had allergies, or they sent their kids to allergen free schools, and their kids wouldn't eat the existing options, right? Those, those were the kind of those early evangelists, you know, when we launched the kind of voyage version of Nutella, which, you know, we refer to as a, you know, 
hazelnut free spread. I think we initially thought it was mostly going to be the the people in the same vein of nut allergies, live with people with nut allergies, etc. And like the vegan community was like, oh my God, this is like the first really good vegan version of Nutella that we've ever had. And like, I was wildly surprised by that. I think, I think it was great, right? Like it, we just, there's a totally different market that was unserved that we hadn't really thought about a lot. Like everything we've done from day one is, you know, this factory, everything's vegan, allergen free, non-GMO, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think we realized how big that was going to be in terms of, you know, that uptick. And on the cacao-free chocolate side and, and the bean-free coffee, I think it really is like a sustainability piece, right? We have really, really, really impressive sustainability improvements, whether it's, you know, water to CO2 and chocolate. Um, and now they're kind of certified ISO-conformant LCAs, so we can talk about that legally and messaging, on pack, et cetera. And I think being able to deliver, you know, very environmentally friendly versions of X across industries, no one's doing that at like a price parity level, right? Whether it's in textiles, whether it's in hand soap or food, you know, sustainability always comes with a price. And, you know, part of our thought from day one is, you know, it's really unfair to the world, so to speak, to only give, you know, affluent people in, you know, places like Boston, LA, New York, San Francisco, ability to vote with their dollar for, you know, better products for a better future. And that's something we really always, you know, from day one, we're really focused on. And that's why you know, our first large retail launch was Walmart, right? Uh, that's where most of America's food is bought. And when we were raising our initial funding, everyone was like, when are y'all going to be in Whole Foods? And we were always like, no, 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 we want to be in Walmart. And they're like, but why? Like, you can go high end. And we're like, no, 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 that's, there's no impact there, right? Like, you sell X kilos of some product, you know, and you're you know, measuring impact by kilo of it. Like, let's go where the world shops. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it also makes sense that maybe each product has a different aha moment for people, right? The peanut free uh, products that people are crying because they finally get to try that peanut flavor again is going to be different from maybe people who are just looking for a more sustainable option to chocolate or coffee or something. So that makes a lot of sense. Sorry, Voyage Foods marketing department, because it's much more complicated to tell a story when there's actually a multitude of different stories that all have to exist at the same time for different product lines and different customer types. But I mean, that's probably not entirely unique for companies who have multiple product categories, right? Each category, you're going to probably have to market a little bit different. So there's like the core story that maybe stays the same and then specific product category attributes that you need to elevate higher. So so probably not too outlandish, but I'm curious, uh, you're a few years in to building this uh, spaceship. <laughs> What's been the most challenging parts of building the brand to date? I feel like something that is challenging but is definitely the way we want the business to go is that you know we have our spreads available in retail to consumers but a lot of the work that we're doing internally is also focused on b2b and food service 
And so obviously those are very different stories you tell, especially when you're looking at there's a food service buyer who's something totally separate they want from a CPG food manufacturer who is completely different from a retailer buyer who's super different from the end consumer. And so while they all have very similar end goals in terms of things like cost, health, taste, sustainability, um, you speak about them very differently and you need like different lenses, um, especially when we look at all the different products that we're working on. So it's, it's definitely a, a challenge and something that not all, especially new food companies tackle all at once. So do you think the food service side was more of the challenge for you or and the consumer side came naturally or vice versa? I don't think it's as simple as that, but I do think there's this piece of attacking three product categories through three channels. <laughs> it's more of an organizational complexity and deployment issue than one of them being really intrinsically harder than the other. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of companies, they're like, I'm going to launch this bar in natural retail. And I think in retrospect, I, I don't think we did anything wrong. I think we've been building a bigger foundation to build a bigger building or spaceship to continue your analogy. But I think it's just adds a lot of organizational complexity. Mm -hmm. You know, if we look back even two years ago, we were a team of, you know, 12 people and we we're talking to food service buyers, large multinational food companies in 70 retail stores. It, it, that stretches a team, right? Um, and I think organizational complexity piece of that is very non-trivial. Yeah, I think that's a good reminder for a lot of other food startup brands. I think you see some companies come out of the gate with one product and they really just drive that one product for years, like without stretching too far in other directions so they can get a, a really good foothold. And then you see other companies come out with like, we had one client who launched, I think, 40 products day one. <laughs> so it's like, that's a whole different layer of complexity. And a, a big challenge because then you've got different ingredients for all those different products, different packaging for all those different products. You've got to have a much longer pitch when you're trying to get retailers to bring those products in or much more complicated website navigation and so on and so forth. So the problems just scale, right? So that your note of even if you just have a few products, not 40, if they're in different categories and maybe have multiple retail paths or different avenues that you could sell them through, then that just adds a lot of complexity. So maybe, again, you're, you're not saying you did anything wrong per se. You like the path that you've chosen, but a path for others to consider is if you want to not take the complex road, just really drive in on that one key product category first, and then maybe scale into the other categories. It was definitely the wrong choice for my hairline, but probably not. For <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, I hesitate sometimes to say like, oh, that was a good business decision or a bad business decision or whatever. It's it's really just the decision you need to make for you and your company, right? Because what one entrepreneur feels like is the right amount of risk is completely different from another entrepreneur's and what one person's goals are for how much, how stressed they want to be growing a complex business versus like, you know what, maybe I'll put my limits a little lower and do the <laughs> less stress path. Like it's all up to them. And then it's, you know, probably different per category and stuff too. So was the right decision for Voyage, but for other companies, maybe it's not the right decision if they don't have the skill sets you have or the experience in the food industry or, you know, the connections or whatever else. Maybe 
start small first and then scale after you've learned some lessons rather than scaling those problems. Like that just reminded me of something I was talking about recently with someone, which was like scaling complexity instead of capacity, basically. So like you get to choose which one you want to scale. If you scale complexity, <laughs> then you just better be willing to put a lot of resources into constantly managing that complexity. But it's totally doable if you do put those resources in. However, if you want to take the other path, you dial in one part of your business so much that by the time you scale it, you're just scaling capacity instead of complexity, right? You've streamlined, you've fixed all the uh, kinks, you've tested every marketing angle, you've done like all that work and now all you have to do is hit the gas pedal and it like can grow from there and, and then you can scale your capacity. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. I was noticing on your website that you have the upcycled mark from the upcycled food association. So thanks for the support of that movement, which we've been kind of part of helping grow, but I didn't see the upcycled certified mark on your products yet. Is that something that you're in the process of going through the certification process or are you just a supporter of the movement and maybe future products might be have an upcycled focus? Yeah. Something that was important to us from the start of our work was to utilize upcycled ingredients or, or side stream processes, if you will, where possible, because they really help our impact on reducing our carbon footprint and sort of like making it more widely available for a longer period of time if it's a plentiful sort of like side stream. And so that's why we utilize grape seeds, for example, as a core component in several of our products. They're upcycled from wine manufacturing. It's a very, very plentiful ingredient available globally. And so we're using it as an upcycled certified ingredient. However, in some of our products, it's not at a high enough percentage for the product to be upcycled certified. And so we very much like to advertise that we are, you know, as you say, supporting the movement because we do, where possible, like to include those in our products. I will say our cocoa-free chocolate, which is, you know, not a retail product, but we're working on a bunch of B2B conversations in the background that does utilize a lot of upcycled material and is eligible for upcycled certification. It can be confusing to see it on the website and not on the package, but yeah, we're definitely um, very much into utilizing those, those types of ingredients where it makes sense. Very cool. Yeah. I'm a big fan. Like what I love about the upcycling upcycled food movement is that it just makes logical sense, right? It's, like, why would you throw out all these ingredients that still have tons of value? <laughs> or why would you not take a look at your processes and see where there's waste in that process that could either be reduced or put to work, whether it's your company or some other company? And it creates some interesting innovations, too. Like, I think it's farmhouse culture it was making so much sauerkraut um, that they started selling gut shots, like the the juice from the sauerkraut as a little probiotic gut shot. But then the gut shots took off so well <laughs> that they then had all this extra pulp from the um, sauerkraut. And then they're like, well, what do we do with all this extra actual sauerkraut pulp now? So they made sauerkraut chips. And it's just this cycle that just kind of like keeps, keeps rolling and allows you to keep innovating, right? So I think the, the principle, the idea is great. So I appreciate you supporting that mission in whatever way you can. So what's your vision for the future of Voyage and the food system in general? You've got these three product categories right now. Are you going to scale those or 
keep growing from there? Yeah, it's a big, beautiful, ethereal question we probably talk about more than we'd like to admit. But, you know, I think if we look five years down the line, Voyage having won and done the thing that we've been working on building is, you know, person X, whether it's in the U.S. or other, goes into a grocery store and sees Powered by Voyage Foods logos on products in different aisles of the grocery store, uh, different product categories. And when they see that logo, is it connotes in some way or another, this product is better food for better worlds, right? If we've if we've reached that level of ubiquity, it means you know we've solved demand and scale and building the business and the brand and have been able to really help the best food brands and CPG companies in the world deliver against their goals, right? We're never going to be the biggest chocolate bar company in the world, but they all have sustainability initiatives and we want to help them get there, right? And so I think, you know, it's a very simplistic example, you know, some random person going into a grocery store anywhere and seeing these little logos of Powered by Voyage Foods or on back of pack, and, you know, realizing that in some way, shape or form, because those ingredients are there, it's better food for a better world. Um, and I think that's like the overly reductive, but probably most tangible, you know, example of that. And yes, there's definitely stuff we're working on that is not publicly available knowledge. Our IP department, which kind of Kelsey all flows from Kelsey and, and the research and development organization very much so doesn't like us talking about things before we have patents filed. But yeah, the hope is to continue solving big problems in food in different product categories one by one. And I think one of the things that is quite unique about us is, you know, we seem much more issue agnostic in some ways than a lot of, you know, impact driven food companies. And I think it gives us a lot of flexibility for impact. Um, and I think that means, you know, in the long game, we can make more. That's amazing. And it also sparked something. So I know some companies' goal is to grow their own branded products, right? Some companies like A Balance, like one of our clients, Organic Valley, at one point quoted to me that they said they like to keep 60% of their business, their own branded products to keep the value of their brand and pay their farmers the best they can, et cetera. And then 40% of the business they build out through, you know, private label or co-manufacturing kind of stuff, right? Or selling ingredients. But I know other companies who are like, yeah, our actual brand is maybe five or 10% of our business. And most of our business is actually through uh, supporting other people's sustainability goals or manufacturing product for them, et cetera. So as you just mentioned, that vision of people going into the store and seeing Powered by Voyage Foods on lots of different products, my guess then would be the long, long-term vision for Voyage is maybe to continue having some of your products, but really helping drive innovation in other people's products. Is that an accurate assumption? And for that, just for any brands out there whose ears just perked up with that message, are you mostly looking to sell kind of ingredient or ingredient mixes that solve some of the challenges you're solving? Or 
can brands come to you with a problem they're trying to solve and you help them solve it? Yeah, I think probably the most linear path, which, which makes the most sense and what we're already, you know, really starting to do. And there'll be some news about in the, in the coming weeks about our first, you know, B2B ingredient partnerships is us selling our ingredients, whether it's a chocolate chip, whether it's, you know, chocolate for a quote unquote chocolate chip, right? Cacao free chocolate chip or, you know, bean-free coffee extracts, et cetera, to help their brands, right? If you're a chocolate company that's sustainability focused, you know, you can, you know, use our cacao-free chocolates. They work on any kind of manufacturing, downstream manufacturing lines. You can save money and uh, talk about that on pack and in advertising um, in a really foolproof manner and also live it, right? Because there's talking about it, but it also is really true and material and you know things like chocolate for example aren't usually a large percentage of formulas but when you look at the environmental impact of the products that they appear in they're a very large percentage of the carbon footprint of that product because you know per kilo they're you know much higher carbon impacts than um the other ingredients in there that makes sense so they can come to you in categories that you've solved um, to either make their product more sustainable or make their product more accessible too, right? Yeah, it's similar to some degree with uh, one of our clients and friends that started by launching regrain to like an upcycled brewer's grain, basically. Spent brewer's grain turning that into food products by finding a way to kind of extend the life of that ingredient. And then now shifting into upcycled foods, Inc., where they're Really, their main focus is selling ingredients, upcycled ingredients to other companies with that regrained ingredient being one of their hero ingredients that they're pushing. So similar kind of path to like, let's launch some of our own products to prove what's possible and show how delicious it can be. But then also let's scale that mission by not just being the only ones using these ingredients. I know we're coming close to the top of the hour, but if you all have a few more minutes, I'd love to dive into a rapid round question segment where it'd be fun to see like your two different answers <laughs> on these little personality tests between the two of you, maybe. It'll um, be so I'll, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so Kelsey I'll start with... I didn't. I think that's the first. Uh, <laughs> She's prepared. She asked me right before. Did you read the questions? I was like, what questions? Um, so that's the first data point. Um Perfect. All right. We're already seeing something about you too. Okay. So <laughs> first question is, which is better, coffee or tea? Coffee for me. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I like really low-grade coffee. I don't like fancy coffee. Okay. <laughs> what do you qualify as fancy coffee? Most things you can find in the Bay Area. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that probably makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite way to use your roasted seed spray? I love eating it on oatmeal. I think people actually get kind of freaked out when they see that because it's not as, as common of a usage, but um, I love it. On Sounds oatmeal. delicious to me. Yeah, it's yeah. really tasty. <laughs> For me, probably ice cream. You know, I don't know a ton of people who do that, but I've been doing that a lot lately of just like a scoop of some sort of nut or seed spread into the ice cream. And I'll also, uh, I was inspired by a friend who had a, company that was selling cereal infused ice cream and i was like that's a really cool idea i'm gonna do that at home so i'll put like a scoop of nut or seed spread and some cereal of some sort on the ice cream to give it a little crunch it's probably not for all tastes but i like it (laughs) and i've uh so far with the delicious 
Voyage food, I've been trying. One of my favorite methods of consumption has been on a cinnamon rice cracker um, from Lundberg Farm. So might try that. Yeah, cinnamon um, is a really nice complimentary sort of like spice we found for the peanut-free spread, especially in recipes. Okay, so if you had to pick one food to eat every day for a year, what would it Not be? Not to be like a stereotypical Northeastern Jew, but smoked salmon on a bagel. I try to eat that every day. Um, sometimes I, I forget, but I, <laughs> I've probably eaten that uh, most days, most years of last year's my life. So that is good. Can't argue with my that. My answer is going to be something that I usually don't eat every day, but or close to every day. But if I had to eat one food every day, I enjoy these so much that I would be able to do it, and that would be French fries. It's my absolute favorite food. Yeah, they're just so tend not to be super great for you, so I don't really eat them a ton. But I would definitely eat those every day if I had to eat something every day. <laughs> well, maybe that's a Voyage Foods innovation someday in the future. <laughs> a less bad for you French fry? I don't know. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. Cool. So since our focus of our show is all about impact, <laughs> who's an impact-driven leader you admire and why? I really admire Andrew Nui, who was the CEO of Pepsi for a number of years. I think the sort of like focus that she had at Pepsi was really unique and she grew the revenue so much that it it sort of like set them up for short and long-term success in a, a number of years where soda and, and chips were being pretty vilified. She was able to like grow that business, but then also add a lot of more healthful brands at Pepsi as well. Very cool. I'm not as familiar with her background, so now I'm going to put that on a to-do list of looking her up. <laughs> oh, Thanks. yeah, she's wonderful. And she's one of the I'd say one of the most successful CEOs who's a woman as well. Um, and when you look at like, the traditional metrics, she was on one of the time, time lists of like most influential women. She's great. Mine's a little further back in time, but I've always been a big Thomas Edison dork. Um, you know, everyone knows him for the light bulb. But I think the the big thing that, like, he's responsible for everything from, you know, not him, like, necessarily, but like the, the companies he built, everything from cement to purifying low-grade iron to what became the TV and movies, right? Um, and really built the kind of what is now the modern R&D engine. But it was this just beautiful interdisciplinary approach to science. So they had people who was basically an apothecary mm. next to electricians, next to people doing glass work. And I think it's always been super inspiring. I think, you know, in some ways analogous to how, how we built what we do here of like the more pieces of all the disciplines in research. I, I could talk about Edison <laughs> and, how awesome. I, I don't think he was a, a good boss per se, but I think from the perspective of what he did for technology, it's it just like totally incredible. And I don't think anyone in a hundred years since has come close. That's a awesome example. And I hadn't thought about like, obviously everybody's heard of him. We had to study him in school or something, but I hadn't thought about the interdisciplinary approach to his work. So that kind of paints him in a new light for me and I, because I especially like interdisciplinary approaches because that's the way the world works. Us humans like to break things down into little silos, but that's not how nature or any other, even uh, it's not how our own lives work, yet we think we can solve problems by just isolating stuff. But 
nothing lives in isolation. So when we're solving problems, we, I feel like should take an interdisciplinary approach too. Otherwise more often than not, I feel like personally we're creating more problems than we solve when we, when we don't take an interdisciplinary approach. And that's modern medicine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cool. Okay. One more question for you. Since the name of the podcast is Brands for a Better World, what does better for the world mean to you? That's a big question. When I was thinking about this, I really, and this might not come as a surprise, judging on how we've sort of built the business at Voyage Foods. For me, it's really creating options for the future that are accessible, whether that be on scale or on affordability or on sort of like lasting prevalence throughout navigating something like climate change, really creating solutions for, for those for the future, those, those problem areas. Mm-hmm. You know, partially answer, partially avoid, but I think it's like, <laughs> solve, like the people are solving the real, real problems, not the talking points, right? Um, I think there's a huge amount of, you know, unsexy stuff that's really important. And, you know, if you're making something that's, you know, like on the carbon capture side, right? For example, there's the direct carbon air capture stuff, which from an investment perspective is going to be higher valuations and get more press, but, you know, better farming is going to do more, right? And I think it's, for me, it's been like, how do we try to focus on like, not the sexy stuff, but the stuff that's going to effectuate the more change. So like, if maybe we don't have the highest this isn't true, but like, it doesn't matter if we don't have the highest, you know, carbon or lowest carbon footprint for cacao-free chocolate. It's how much total carbon can we take out of the, you know, the globe with our product, right? That matters much more on, on scale, et cetera. And I think, you know, Better Brands for a Better World is very much so like, let's focus on the people like, the company's focusing on the people who it matters most to. I think it's the mo- most important. And that's very rarely where VC money goes. But I think, you know, doing that in a way that is profitable and can self-sustain itself, like those are the things that really benefit the world most. Like everyone in San Francisco and New York City, like they're going to be fine. They don't need anyone's help, right? They'll eat well, et cetera. But, you know, impacting at scale and not just in the fun markets, I think is where the biggest impact happens. Yeah, that's cool. And I love how both those answers fit together to be kind of paint a picture of Voyage as well, right? But yeah, so that's one of my challenges with the tech industry is so often people in tech just want innovation for innovation's sake. And they're maybe even justifying it by saying, well, we're solving for this world problem. But often the problem they're solving for already has an answer. (laughs) People just want the shiny, fun VC-backed answer instead of the answer that's actually just been around since the beginning of time, like regenerative agriculture or something, right? So it's like, we already know how to solve a lot of these problems. We're just not doing it because we're so distracted by the flashy tech. And then the flashy tech maybe will innovate in some way, but it might also just cause 99 other problems that we're going to have to solve 20 years from now. So so I hear you there, like taking a, a book from both of your answers, kind of like thinking about solving real problems that will actually be effective solutions in the future, not just a fun thing to talk about today, which is also a great way to wrap it up. Cause I feel like that's also kind of what you both are trying to accomplish with voyage foods. So I appreciate you going on that journey. I appreciate you getting kind of creative with your solutions, but also keeping them grounded in 
real, you know, food, clean ingredients and doing things the right way in many aspects of your business in terms of how you're running your business, what types of products you're creating and for whom and how you're trying to keep them accessible. So thanks for doing that work to show up as better leaders and to try to build a better brand. And then for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having us on. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Adam, Kelsey, or their company, visit voyagefoods.com or at voyagefoods on social. If you like this show, remember to help us grow by liking, reviewing, and sharing. If you're new here, don't forget we have over 100 episodes in the archive. Some might be called Evolve CPG, but it's the same show, so dig in for more goodness. If you consider yourself an impact-driven professional, Join me over at impactdriven.community where we're supporting each other's growth as impact leaders.